0: I don't think anyone can say the employee-employee relationship is all good because it's definitely not. It is awfully skewed leverage in the direction of business. It behooves all of us to actually think about what is my career and how do I look at me as my greatest asset I own, my career as the greatest asset I own, and how do I leverage that? Now you have something where you can actually think about what is my value on the market? What should I be getting paid? Right now it's a black box and business gets to own that black box. make you feel paranoid about it and even hang that over your head but i think in the future it's going to be much more transparent
1: ai is going to ruin the world and destroy jobs or is it This week's guest takes an optimistic view about how AI and robotics can combine to solve the broken employee-employer relationship.
0: We can rely on those machines to do that work. And so it's making us realize like, wow, the human abilities are going to be coveted in the future.
1: I, the worker, I have control over what I'm doing. Drew sees a world where human skills are more valued than ever. And technology like blockchain helps individuals navigate their careers. As machines proliferate,
0: the need for human judgment increases. And that means that the value of a human is
1: going to increase. Keep listening. If you're ever worried about AI taking over your job, welcome to the Thought Follower. I'm Joe Mackay. I've always had a lot of questions about life, and this show is my quest to find some answers. Each week I chat to a thought leader to hear what's going on in their space. Let's jump into the next episode. My next guest on the show is the founder and CEO at Lever Talent. Drew Fortin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me joe but maybe just to kind of set the scene and put things in context how would you describe what you do in a couple of sentences
0: sure i would say i help leaders get unstuck and understand what it means to truly achieve their own potential and help others achieve their potential um and we do that not just by understanding ourselves but by realizing that there are tons of different levers all around us, especially in the form of technology. And that's where the root of my passion is, is helping people realize that technology is here to free us from the mundane and tedious tasks in life and allow us to achieve what we truly feel is greatness or satisfaction.
1: Yeah. You've done a lot of research and thinking about technology and the role that it plays in the future. Mm-hmm. and. It seems to me when I see a lot of your stuff, you called this out in an article you published that the employee-employer relationship is broken. I think that's a sentiment, not in every single case, not for every single employee or for every single employer, but I think there's a general sentiment at the moment that things need to shift and we've obviously seen things shift. Why do you think the employee-employer relationship is broken?
0: It was never that great from the start. I recently did a bunch of research of different experts across academia and investing and economics, never asked this question to an economist by their way. They're like, how can it be broken? Money is being, really what this comes down to is an acknowledgement that we are slow to adapt and their employee relationship from decades ago with the assembly line and mass manufacturing was very different. It was, you are a human and you are part of the machine. And now with artificial intelligence and the advancements in robotics, we can rely on those machines to do that work. And so it's making us realize like, wow, the human abilities are going to be coveted in the future. And that means that I, the worker, I have control over what I'm doing. I can choose more about how I want to work, where I want to live when I work finding work that aligns with my values, being with others who share those values, it's opening us up to agency. And right now we're in this transition point. So it is broken, it's fractured. And when executives, boards, very well-established businesses need to change, do they willingly say, sure, we'll just change everything? No, because it costs money. Hmm. And so it causes this rub we're seeing a lot more union activity than we have historically. And it's not like we're stepping back in time. It's just that we have a major platform shift upon us, new technology, a new outlook on life. And it's making us all question like, well, what was I doing? What was I smoking? And why was I just sticking around when I could have been working on my career? It's a provocative question. And I don't think anyone can say the employee-employee relationship is all good, because it's definitely
1: that goes really to the core of a philosophical question of should it be all good? Work by definition is not play, is not fun. But I think you're right. There is a sensation now that people feel like they're just a small part in a big machine. So if it's broken now, what do you see as the future? How do we get out of this?
0: I think we start giving more control to individuals. Your career is the greatest asset you want. And I think that you would be hard pressed in this economy to say, oh yeah, I can, I'm an at will employee. That means I can leave whenever I want. The reality is you can't. It is awfully skewed leverage in the favor of business and the direction of business. And I think that what the future holds is a little more equilibrium because as technology takes over the more transactional components of work, it's leaving humans for the more relational components of work. And that's not just interpersonal relationships, which will be coveted. It's finding relationships between disparate data sets and things that machines just aren't hooked up to do. It's creativity. It's subjective decision-making as machines proliferate, the need for human judgment increases. And that means that the value of a human is going to increase. And if you're at the top of your game with your human abilities in whatever field you're, you're in, that's where the value is going to be created for yourself and your career.
1: I read your article on the future of work. You made the assessment that a lot of work that we would today call white collar through technology has essentially become blue collar. Could you just tell me a little bit more about that?
0: First off, I think... The notion of white-collar and blue-collar work, maybe when it first came out, was acceptable. But I think right now it does nothing but divide. It creates classism. Whatever work you're doing, whether it's knowledge work or doing work, regardless, there's definitely a phenomena or a cycle that happens when you have this knowledge work, let's call it. You had computers. Computers used to not be machines. There was actually a role in business called a computer, and it was a person that was really good at math. And NASA had computers. They went from human computers to a machine that could do the computing, which then freed the mathematicians up to do other things and proliferated this technology of computing into society and gave us all a leg up. What happens with that is the computer was a knowledge worker. And then they're like, oh, I'm going to be optimized by machines. And so the machines allow us all to be computers and then really smart people have to use the machines and then the machines get more advanced and then more people can use computers. And then you see with platform innovations, whether that's computing, AI, robotics, knowledge work is where it starts. Cause it's all theoretical. It's all knowledge work. That theoretical work turns into functional work that turns into engineering. Once engineers start to figure out form and function that turns into production, into design. And then the utmost you can go after design is art. And that's taking all the stuff that we do and know and doing something good with it again. It's actually a cycle of going from knowing to doing. And so really all the blue collar work before was manufacturing and the manufacturing got more and more automated, more and more automated. And so then computers came and they're like, great. Now we're in a knowledge economy and everyone's doing computing and we're doing this quote white collar work, but now you have something like sales. And now we have CRMs and we have BDRs and we have ADRs. That is the equivalent of blue collar work before you're literally doing data entry, following a script following a process, the more you follow it, the better you follow it. The less you focus on being yourself as a human, the more you focus on following the process, you are going to be successful, Mm. right? You're literally automating yourself out of a job, making it so that a machine can do your work. We see this phenomena in innovations. We see it in roles. We see it in industries. And I think if we're aware of that, then we can decide what role we want to play. Some people are really great at management and they might be good at one part of management like engineering or production and what that means is you're just going to hang out in one part of the cycle and as more innovations come through you're going to have to stay on top of the innovations and and the learning if you want to stay on top of your game but the other thing that you could do is start off in the theoretical let's say you're a startup founder and the new ai thing and people don't know a lot about ai you could literally have a whole career where you go from startup founder, then you're going to be head of a big growth company, and they're going to be head of a mega huge conglomerate company, and then you're going to get old and then you're going to want to be a consultant. And that's like the, the art part of the phase, that whole innovation, that platform innovation of AI is eventually going to lead to a lot more doing work and a a decade or two. I can't even fathom what that doing work is going to be, but it will be. I think we should all just be aware of that, that it's a cycle. I hope the next big like wave of decades is gonna be probably the creator's economy. And it's no longer about what you know, the internet fixed that for us, and now AI is gonna answer that for us and do it for us. AI can give us, we can say, I have an idea. AI can say, cool, here's 10 more. Creativity, curiosity, these are the things that they need to start teaching kids in elementary school it's no longer grow up and have a white collar or blue collar job. It's going to be, well, how do you think about systems? How do you think about patterns? Mm-hmm. I hope to God that we get away from blue collar white collar thinking for sure.
1: AI is a hot topic at the moment from the extreme evangelists to the doomsdays What you seem to be most excited about is what you see as coming next, which is robotics powered by AI. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah. The field of robotics needs the power of AI
0: in order to continue to advance in the way that it is going. We've just had a couple of decades of software in our lives. And now I think we're gonna enter a new world of hardware. Over the past couple decades, The Roomba vacuum is really like the only big innovation that anybody has in their home, but we're gonna see a lot more of it. And there's so much happening in robotics, colleges, universities all over the world. Fascinating work, whether it's with swarm robotics or soft robotics, there's so much happening in healthcare because of the nurse shortages and everything else. And Mm -hmm. the artificial intelligence is gonna help these robots think through these processes that we take for granted like reaching up into a cabinet and taking a bottle of pills off a shelf and then dumping out three pills in your hand is actually awfully complex to create a robot that knows what bottle to look at, open the bottle and pour it out, right? That, those are things that are, that now with artificial intelligence that we'll see huge advances on in the next couple of decades. Mm.
1: My rough layman's definition of robotics would be essentially computing power that can do something. You mentioned the Roomba, or like the, the robotic lawnmower. Yeah. Is that what robotics yeah. is?
0: No, I mean, AI is a robot. You don't need to have a hardware for something to be called a robot. Anything that is programmed or can even be controlled a little remotely is a robot.
1: So we've talked a little bit there about how technology enables humans in the future to focus on more of those human only skills. Mm-hmm. And in your theory of this future of work, that has some pretty interesting consequences for the human workforce moving forward and how we find work, how we stay in work and move through the job market.
0: Tell me more about that. I think that as machines free us up, can help us simplify our career paths. We can have a career path that is riding that cycle, managing in that cycle as it moves, or we can have a career path that stays put. If we know that about ourselves in our career, then we can plan accordingly. I don't think many people plan out their career in that way. I think we have goals and we say, I'd like to have a house by this time. We look at work as just the creator of some value in our life that we can use for other things. And I think we're increasingly, especially in this decentralized world and all we're having with hybrid work, our work is going to become much more integrated into our life. And I think it behooves all of us to actually think about, well, what is my career? And my peak earning years are probably going to be in my early 50s. How do I look at me as my greatest asset I own, my career as the greatest asset I own? And how do I actually leverage that? And I think based off of your own personality, your education, cognitive ability, all of these coveted human abilities that I think there'll be a market for in the future. Now you have something where you can actually think about like, what is my value on the market? What should I be getting paid? Right now it's a black box and business gets to own that black box and make you feel paranoid about it and even hang that over your head. But I think in the future, it's gonna be much more transparent and much more clear and when you have that knowledge, you'll be able to make the determination. You know what? It's worth me quitting my job right now and going to get more education. Because if I do that, it'll bring this much back to me. Mm. It's kind of insane that we don't do that in our career, but we should. Yeah. And I think that this future of work is gonna open us up to that.
1: You're right. I feel like there's not many of us out there who truly can do that, who really are at will employees. Hey, it's Joe here. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Every chat in season one of The Thought Follower. It's very different. I've talked to creatives, economists, elite athletes, CEOs, venture capitalists, and a bunch more along the way. You never quite know what you're going to get. So make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you don't miss an episode. Get back to the chat. As the shift to human skills increases and we become more aware of where we sit and and what the value is, how do you see that playing out for us moving through the job market and moving towards that kind of at-will employment State. How do you see that happening?
0: I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell is most famous for discovering the monomyth or the hero's journey. One of his big things is follow your bliss. And I think that we all want to follow our bliss. We all have something we're passionate about. There are some things that society has taught us that, well, you can't really make money after that. So you should probably have a job and then you can do what you like, Right. And I think that world is quickly changing. There are these things called DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations that are being created in crypto markets and Web3. And it's essentially (laughs) working anonymously, contributing to something that's way bigger than you are by all these disparate actors. I think that's happening in small droves, but it's growing. If we look at that, that's a hint, I think, a sniff of things that could be coming in the future. I think at-will employment actually does not serve the individual personally. I think that Upwork, contract work, what we've seen over the last few years has actually made it acceptable. One of the things that we're actually talking about at Talent, we're a small business, but as as we move forward, is this notion of an employment contract. Not just like, oh, you're a contracted employee, but actually like, let's talk about the severance now while we like each other. Let's actually have this conversation about what that would look like if you had to exit the company. I think then individuals would feel much more freedom over how they want to craft their career journey. I feel like right now it's kind of expected that you go and you have a job and a lot of people just try to keep it and get promoted in the same company for as long as they can. That just feels really loose to me.
1: And I think that that's what the future is going to free us up to do. You seem to be quite optimistic about this. Where does that optimism come from?
0: I think we're inherently born good i think as a society especially here in the u.s you know politics is used to keep dividing but mm-hmm. we're much more similar than we are apart in so many different ways i also look back at these major platform innovations before ai was digital transformation thanks to wi-fi and the and then before that just the internet and then before that computers All of those platform changes came with fear mongering and people scared for their jobs. Were jobs displaced? Absolutely. Were they like, oh, this platform came and I lost my job tomorrow? No, it happens much slower than that. The good news is now we've been alive and have been monitoring these cycles for a while. We can see how they happen. Are the velocity of the cycles increasing? Absolutely. But is AI gonna come in like a year? It's gonna tackle and like destroy all the jobs that the World Economic Forum says it's gonna destroy next year. No. Not that we can sit around, but if we start planning now, I think we can be, I think we can be okay about it. And I'm just so excited to see what this next wave is gonna free us up to do. We don't know, but somebody's gonna figure out, oh, here's another thing that creates value in the world. There'll be more work than we know what to do with. So it's not like work's gonna go away. It's not can
1: bit of a thought experiment. Imagine the construction worker, the, the landscape gardener, the future that you envisage around work. How does that journey play out for them? Do you think? Well, if I'm a landscaper
0: and I had a landscaping business, I'd be thinking about scale. I'd be thinking about growth. So I could use technology to scale the business, increase the number of clients that I can have, fewer machines, fewer labor. Sure. But then there's the other side of landscaping too is you may have somebody that's just super passionate about trimming hedges and shaping them into art or somebody else that is essentially a farmer and will figure out the right mix of shrubs and design the landscape. And that's a perfectly acceptable job too. The path sometimes feels almost already defined for us. And sometimes we need help just breaking from that. Is there a thought leader out there that you're following Uh, the, the phrase thought leadership is interesting to me. People sharing their thoughts and being confident about them, thought leadership. I think what makes a good thought leader is someone that's very consistent. Authenticity is important. And you know, one that sticks out to me that they post daily, their daily principles is Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Associates. Um, if you've never read the book principles, it's awesome just really practical, fundamental advice. And I think that's all we're really looking for when you're reading thought leadership. Oh, I just learned something new. Yes, that does happen. But you're also just looking for a reminder. Oh yeah, I should do that. Oh, I never thought of it that way. The it in this case is something so basic and something that we all do and we all need. I think thought leadership is art. And so it's taking something that you thought looked one way or you thought had a conventional use and being applied to something totally different and helping you see it differently and change your perspective. Yeah. Ray Dalio, I think definitely does that really well. Do you see yourself as a thought leader? No, I have imposter syndrome. I learned about myself at Lever Talent. We help businesses understand their mission, vision, and values. We help them understand their personality. We help them understand team dynamics. And we use tools to help them do that. And, you know, one of the things I know about myself is that I love to hang in the vision space and I get really passionate about what's going to happen in the future. And because of my passion there and my obsession with understanding those things like technology's impact on the future of work, I will talk to anyone about it for hours. Does that make me a thought leader? Maybe. I have thoughts about it. I'm passionate about it. I'm learning about it. And I'm engaging with others. And I have the desire to create content to help others think about it, to share thoughts. When I share thought leadership, I'm not I'm not having like these mic drop moments where I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm gonna share that. Um, this is thought leadership. I share it and I yeah. and there are sometimes I don't like oh, what's this gonna do? I'm just curious how people think about that, right? Or I have a contrary opinion. I've learned that I'm comfortable with who I am and I'm not afraid to ask questions and I'm not afraid to say what I believe. And if that's not leadership, then I I guess so.
1: You touched on imposter syndrome there, which (laughs) I think is such a super common thing, but you strike me as someone who knows yourself really well as a leader. What was that journey like to know yourself better and how has that helped you in work? I would say
0: the journey earlier in my career, I said, I like to hang in the vision space. It's really because I have a low appreciation or regard for details and structure. I feel bogged down by that. And so I appreciate breadth more often than depth. And so I'll generalize in things and younger in my career, me generalizing in things, thinking that that was the way to live life and have a career. I came off as arrogant, egotistical, etc. And it's true, my ego is huge. I think even imposter syndrome itself is saying I have an ego. And so what do we mm. do? We prevent ourselves from going out on a limb and trying something new because we don't want our ego to get hurt. And I think that even now it's still inside is the imposter saying like, you can't do this. No one's gonna like that. That's not that great. And that happens to me all the time. But what I've realized is I'm a junkie for that stuff. That's what gets me going. That's what gets me excited. And sometimes people do like it. Sometimes people don't. I love that. And I live for that. And that satisfies a part of me. But I have imposter syndrome all the time. Honestly, the past few years, transitioning to working from home, I'm a highly extroverted person. I need validation from people around me. If I don't go find that, time to socialize with others and get that validation that I'm a contributing human and I can be social and people like to be around me, then I can go to a dark place.
1: I think mental fitness is such a huge and probably an increasing part of, you know, like an athlete needs to stay physically fit to be able to play and perform at their best. And I see for us knowledge workers, that mental fitness being so crucial to be able to do anything positive. What's the role of mental fitness in your approach to professional development?
0: It's something at Lever Talent we talk about all the time. Resilience implies that you are malleable, bendable. You can work through something, but at the end, your form remains the same. It's like, you can bend, but it's not like you're going to have a permanent adaptation you'll get through it and you'll spring back. The concept of anti-fragile is absorbing the adversity in front of you, adapting, morphing and coming out the other side with that superpower. With that extra ability, with the different shape. And when I think about this concept of mental fitness, I try to subscribe to that, which is the more that I can take on that's challenging, take on that's frustrating, I'm stretching my brain, I'm learning more, mm-hmm. and I'll be able to apply myself differently in the future. And I think in business, knowledge work, that's why there's all this talk now about, outcomes over activities. Because you can sit in front of a computer all day, but now I've realized like I like to work out in the middle of the day. I like to be at home. I like it when I can walk downstairs and go right from a meeting into lunch or dinner with my family. That's better for me mentally. And I think that we all need to take stock in what it is for us. Well-being in business is something a lot of businesses have talked about. In fact, there was a recent study, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and then Gusto had a report on the amount of vacation time taken in the first half of this year in 2023 was more vacation time taking than all through the pandemic. That's showing that people are like, oh, I I need a break. But it's also probably that businesses are saying, you know what, we should take a break. And it's great that that's happening in our society. Mm. And it's great that more workplaces are offering that flexibility to work remotely or to do what you have to do. Most people now clock out between the hours of four and six. That's great because mm. data also shows that they're like, I'm gonna clock out between four and six I'm so I can be with my family and then I'm gonna clock in later. I'm gonna put in more yeah. work later tonight. And that's okay, right? The whole paradigm yeah. shifting. And I think when it shifts, it's going to be for the better for our mental stability and well being
1: the concept of anti fragility. I hadn't heard that before. I really like it. Resilience has always struck me as how much can I tolerate? Like what can I survive? But that concept of anti-fragility does go that step further. Whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I come out the other side of it with a new adapted form, you know, a superpower. I think what's interesting about it is you don't necessarily know that you have adapted, that you've built a superpower until you reflect. Like I'm someone who does a lot of self-reflection. I'm always kind of overanalyzing how I show up at work and and all different parts of my life. So I do do a lot of that reflection and and A lot of moments recently have, I've looked back and I thought, wow, I I did that, you know, and I remember 10 years ago, I tried to do that and I couldn't. That idea of antifragility sums that up really nicely for me. That's a great one. Maybe just circle back a little bit. You do know yourself well and a post I saw of yours recently, you know, it's high dominance. You've got a visceral reaction to hard and fast rules and structures. You're low detail, high extroversion, low patience. Is there an exercise or a set of steps or how do you create that blueprint or that picture of yourself?
0: For years before founding Lever Talent, I worked at a company called the Predictive Index, which has roots in behavioral assessment. It's a talent optimization platform, but thinking about behavioral factors, cognitive ability, and the more that you know yourself and you know others, the better you can be at work. And the more success you'll have in your career as a leader on your team, with your team, et cetera. And we all have drives. Those drives are what provoke our behavior because the drive creates a need and then we behave. You just took a sip of water. I'm gonna venture to guess your mouth was this dry and that you're not just like incredibly thirsty right now because you went for a run, right? But I'm making an assumption. So the predictive index is measured on a four factor behavioral model. And those four factors are dominance, which is needing to have your thumbprint on something and to put your idea forward. Extroversion, which is your need to be social and to talk things through. Patience, which is your need for stability and process. People with high patience need to understand why before they move forward. And formality, people with high level of need for detail and structure. Those four factors through an assessment, they're essentially on spectrums of high and low. When those four factors are compared to each other, you can have a behavioral pattern. So my behavioral pattern in PI world is what's referred to as a Maverick. And I'm atypical for most Mavericks. Most Mavericks have highest dominance. I have highest extroversion, but the defining factors that make me a Maverick are the fact that I like to take risk. My lowest factor is the formality, the need for detail and structure. And so what that means is I love to talk things through. I love to move an idea forward. I love to move really fast. And I don't need a lot of detail to do it. I love ambiguous situations, but there's no clear answer because that's where I function. I love to have a lot on my plate because mm. when that happens, the world actually slows down for me and I can be like, well, there's so much going on. Now I can focus on something, right? Those are things that I know about me. And I think earlier in my career, and you've probably had this experience too, as most people have, they kind of get pigeonholed. I had somebody that was like, you're not detail oriented enough. Drew, you have to be more detail oriented. Drew, you yeah. missed this detail, you missed that. I'm like, oh my God, I need to be more detail oriented. And had I known this about myself, it's not that I'd have been like, ah, I, I don't pay attention to detail. So I need to worry about that. No, there are times when I have to stretch and I have to adapt. But the whole concept is we all have superpowers. Lean in on the superpowers, focus on doing work that aligns with those superpowers. You will get better. It is a muscle that you can work out, it'll get huge the more you work it, the more you focus on it, the more you try to do good in the world with it in your career will follow. Happiness in life will follow because the moment you try to do something that is not you and you force yourself into it, you're gonna, it's like if you're right-handed and somebody forced you to, write and draw with your left hand all day if you're just going to be miserable you're never going to be great at it yep.
1: you may get okay yep. at it hey it's me again if you've made it this far i'm guessing you're enjoying the chat don't forget to give the thought follower a rating and share it with your friends otherwise reach out to me on linkedin with any guest suggestions or feedback on the show i'd love to hear from you let's get back to the episode so the low detail piece you you mentioned a little bit earlier why don't we map out our career you know what does it look like over a long period of time yeah have you gone through that exercise and how has that happened you know with a low detail focused do you thrive in that situation is that quite quite challenging i'm a goals oriented person i've always been so there's
0: always something that i'm working towards at the same time you're absolutely right i don't have that planning i like to wing it you know just like business strategy you think about like okay we're doing this most companies, most leadership teams just form it. they're Like we have five to seven years to do this before our investors need to pay everything. There are phases to it. And so I think if we look at our life, I was lucky enough to have a coworker who was a manager at the time. They're like, oh my, my brother-in-law's a financial advisor. And I was in my, my mid twenties. Like I don't make enough money to have a financial advisor. And they're like, oh, well, you should probably talk to him. And I was married at the time. And that moment I realized like that was what instilled in me, like your career is your asset. Your key earning years are this. And when you're younger in your career, you should probably be more focused on setting the right trajectory than if you're middle of your career. And so you're gonna think about those things. And knowing that early on instilled in me, like you always have to have six months of cash runway case something happens at work or you, you don't like what you're doing for work and you need to make a change like that's really important and you should look at your key earning years right which depends on your generation and everything else but probably around 50 ish let's you're going to be like you're around your key earning years i just set out and said you know what by the time i'm 30 i'd love to be managing someone because i really had a desire to lead and so when you start to craft out these goals you naturally it's amazing you put a plan into the world Seems to happen. When you tell somebody like, I wanted to be a CEO. I've wanted to be a CEO for over a decade. I start to tell people, I think I want to be a CEO. I'd like to learn about that. Well, Mm -hmm. when they're off and they're like, oh, Drew really wants to be CEO. Maybe I give him this project because that'll help, right? Once you start to put yourself out there, it's just amazing how the world comes and supports you. I don't know if that's detail orientation, Joe. I think that's goal orientation's a little different.
1: It's so true The the people that want to see you win will help you win and you've gotta be sharing that goal. You've got to get that help. The other part of your blueprint is high dominance. As a leader, how do you set your team up around you? Does that mean you need to surround yourself with lower dominance people that that you can kind of actively lead? Or what does that mean for your, your structure?
0: My goal is to surround myself with people that are smarter than me and to get out of their way. I think behavioral diversity is important. If I have high dominance, and I'm surrounded by people that don't, then my idea will always seem like the best idea. And with behavioral insight, like using a product like the Predictive Index, you could easily program a team. Like we have a head of client success who just joined the company a few months ago. And one of the biggest factors we looked at was their behavioral pattern in relationship to myself, to their counterpart in professional services. What does that look like? And what does the team need? Well, what the team needed was somebody that was more focused on teamwork and experience. We're looking for a bit of a unicorn, somebody that was forward-facing, but also had an objective decision-making style and a passion for Mm -hmm. systems. And we found that. My wife's actually part of our business. She helps us run our books and she was like, four weeks in, she she was like, it feels like they've been here for like the whole time, like it just feels, natural. That's what you want. I also know that I don't know everything and that there are many different ways to accomplish the goal. So I I really try to stay with this is what we want to become. Here are the areas that we want to get into. How can I help you? How can I serve you? Show appreciation for the people around me. But I really mean that just get out of their way.
1: One of the biggest things as a leader is getting out of the way, like you said, and saying, I don't know the answer, but we've got experts in this building. For me, getting a promotion, yep. moving up the ladder is all about, I've got to demonstrate I'm skilled in this. I'm expert in this. I can advise on this. You know, I need to show how much I know to move up.
0: You have those tests in life, in your career. So those moments do happen. But I think that one of the greatest underrated leadership skills is vulnerability. There's a great power and showing people that you're okay, not knowing and you're okay, trusting somebody else to do something. So that was something that I learned in my career. It's okay. When somebody says, do you know what's happening here? I don't, but let me get someone on my team that can help you understand that. There's a lot of vulnerability in the way that I just approached that. And yeah. I think that leads to credibility. People know that, okay, you're not just going to make something up. When you're put on the yeah. spot, you're going to say,
1: I don't know. And that's okay. How do you get the ego out of the way to have that vulnerability?
0: I went through a stint when I was leading folks that I would have them read the book No Ego by Cy Wakeman. And some people, one person I gave it to, like, got offended. They're like, do you think I have an ego? And I'm like, well, that's your ego. I think <laughs> that out-of-control ego is like a cancer. It just eats away. And I think one of the biggest misnomers about ego is that we look at somebody in politics like Donald Trump is huge ego. And that's what ego is right? I think that the other side is even more dangerous. And that's the ego that prevents you from doing something, prevents you from speaking up, just makes you submit. That's also ego. Mm. And so I think the way that we have to manage through it is by talking about it, but also getting help from others. So Mike Zani, the CEO at the Predictive Index has this process. He has people go through called front of t-shirt, back of t-shirt. Front of your t-shirt is what people see when you walk in the room back of the t-shirt is what people mm. see on the way out or they didn't say in that meeting. I have my front of t-shirt back of t-shirt document. I've been maintaining for almost 10 years now and it evolves slightly over time, but I'm pretty clear on those things that are my ego, the back of my t-shirt, and I've gotten enough coaching and feedback and asked people for that. When you see this, do you see this about me? Cause somebody else just said that this happens with me. Yes, Drew, you do that.
1: And it's crazy. It drives us nuts. I've had that happen, and that's great. That's a gift. What's a concrete example of some of that feedback you got where we were driving your team crazy and, and you didn't realize?
0: One of the things that I can do because I have low attention for to just low regard for detail orientation and all the nitty gritty, and really get excited about new new things, is we'd get a project started, things are rocking and rolling. And then somebody would be like, yeah, but like, what about this? And I'm like, oh, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Like, I'm sure you can go figure that out. We can, we can fix it. That happened a lot. And somebody brought up to me, they said, hey, you know, when you do this, like you actually minimize this person and you minimize the people that are in the more operational roles. It comes off as you're not appreciating. I don't know whether you do or not, which I absolutely do. I totally appreciate them, but I wasn't hanging out there long enough. Right. So that's an example of it. The other example is i love debating stuff and i tend to default to using hyperbole and there are times where i'm like oh we're, we're debating so let's do it but it didn't get the right cues and it just came off as me being a complete jerk so i know that about myself and it's not that it never happens because i know it yeah. but now when somebody says hey can i talk to you?" I'm like oh, you're gonna talk to me i had a feeling about this they're like yep that's that's it no
1: I'll, I'll take that as a win if i can if i can recall off of them mm. saying we need to chat so is that an ongoing step you're taking like checking in for feedback regularly how are you managing this the ego on an ongoing basis and getting better at doing that
0: i had years of business coaching and joined a peer advisory group i've been a member of vistage international which is peer advisory i'm now a member of a smaller community and peer advisory network called collaborative gain and these are like group business therapy we meet as a group once a month twice a year in person and you build affinity and relationship with these people and you share with them your, you know, deepest, darkest concerns and secrets about yourself and the work context and ask for help on how to process is- issues. And over time you learn that issue processing as is a learned behavior. And that's something that's really helpful. The other thing that I'll recommend to anyone is get therapy. I think the more that you talk about Your feelings, you learn where those come from. We all have different anxieties and it's okay. We all feel anxiety. We all feel it in different ways. How we experience it though, whether somebody has extreme anxiety about something and that I don't have anxiety about when they feel it, I felt that anxiety before. and when you begin to acknowledge that you begin to appreciate other people's differences. So therapy is important. And then different frameworks for a while i was really driving home with my teams that i work with patrick lencioni's five dysfunctions of the team framework which is really about trust once you have a foundation of trust you can actually have conflict once you have conflict you can actually commit once you have commitment you can actually have accountability and then and only then can you achieve results really what that comes back to is just trust the opposite of trust is suspicion and you're not going to build trust without being open and honest with yourself and open and honest with others. And we try to do that all the time. And then from a personal development standpoint, we mandate on our teams. We also have a leadership program we call the Lead with Leverage program. A big part of that is personal development. And if you're managing a person, my take on it is every six to eight weeks, you have a conversation with them about their personal development. That can be professional development too, but what, how are things going in the business? How are things going in life? How are things going in your career? How are things going behaviorally? And what are things that we can be aware of and work work on together? What are you looking to, to improve on? And I try to practice that myself. So it's a journey, not a destination. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. So you're the CEO, at the end of a year, how do you determine if it's been a good year or a bad year?
0: So we are a startup, anything can happen at any time, but we have goals, we have financial goals, we have client goals, we have new product goals. And I think when you're just starting out, there's a lot of volatility, variability in the goals. So you're gonna be saying, oh, over the next 12 months, I think this is what we should do. But every month that could change. But then once you actually, get traction, you start to feel something, then your planning cycle goes to every quarter. Let's think about our strategy. And that goes to every six months, like at Lever Talent, every six months feels about right. We're looking at our team dynamics every six months. We're looking at our business plan and the things strategically that we thought that we wanted to do. And we recalibrate every six months, probably in 18 to 24 months, we'll get beyond the six months and we'll be looking at annual planning. And then beyond that, we'll be looking at multi-year planning. I think you just got to start from somewhere. It's kind of like when you're like, oh, we're not measuring that yet. Well, well, what should it be? I don't know. Just start measuring it first, start collecting data, start adapting. And then over time, you'll naturally figure out the rhythm that works. And that's kind of how we approach lever talent. And so far we're hitting our goals. It's led to us not creating these crazy, you know, lofty goals that we can't hit. And then everyone's just feeling defeated and deflated and it's kept us honest. We were lucky enough that we're functioning off of the revenues that we're bringing in and we don't have outside
1: investors, but I do have
0: bank that I work with.
1: You mentioned before we, we got on air, you've got a new podcast that's out. Tell me a bit about the podcast. It's called The Lever with
0: Drew Fortin. It's a show that focuses on the impact that technology, AI, robotics, web three is having on the future of work and the good things it means for us workers. There's a lot of fear mongering out there as we all know, like these jobs are being displaced, AI robots are taking over. And as we've talked about here today, you know, I, I just think that's going we're gonna lead to a whole lot of depression unnecessarily because of that. Let's focus on the good things it's gonna have, let's lean into it, let's embrace it. And with that, we can change the world. So what we did is based off of my POV, which you could read the, the five trends that are shaping the future of work. You could go to levertalent.com and check that out. Then we set out to find experts across academia, investing, business, and economics to give us their take on it. So I have over 20 interviews, 25 hours of footage, hundreds of pages of transcripts, and we use that to create our episodes. So each episode is 10 to 20 minutes and it's kind of like a jam-packed inspirational educational session on we've broken up the future work into five various components on august 7th the first episode will drop really excited had a great team that i worked with to do that
1: that's awesome that will definitely be getting a follow on my spotify although to be honest i've I've struggled a little bit to get my head around some of the thoughts that you've had. It's such an interesting space. It feels all encompassing. I mean, I guess for people like me who sit in front of a computer and work on the internet all day, it feels really fundamental, the shift that's happening. Drew, thanks so much for coming on the show yeah. and sharing a lot about about yourself and, and about the future of work. I'd love to chat to you about it again sometime in the future. Absolutely, Joe.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support me or the show, best way is to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you with any guest recommendations or feedback on the show. See you on the next one.